Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I feel like so much love right now for everyone in this room because so many of you have supported me to get here with your conversations and your free lunches when I really didn't have any money to buy lunch for myself. And uh, I just was back on the East Coast last week doing some book events, and I was in my home state of Maine, and my cousin said, well, don't you think about moving back? And I said, no. And he said, no. And I said, no. California is my place. Those are my people. You can be into health food. They're like, cool. You can be into cults. They're like, cool. (laughs) You can be into heavy metal. They're like, cool. Whatever you like. So I'm just so glad to be back here with my people. Um, So as some of you know, uh, my book, Good Girl, is sort of a coming-of-age story told through the lens of my relationship with my dad, which for the first part of my life was really my lack of relationship with my dad. So he's a fantastic character. I can vouch for that. Uh, What I'm going to do is just read a couple of pieces from throughout the book uh, that kind of give you a little bit of an introduction to him and and us. And uh, then my dear friend Jillian, who's also a wonderful writer, is going to come up and we're going to talk a little bit about the book and some of the the issues of the book. And then if you have questions, um, I'm happy to answer them and then we'll sign and then maybe go drink some wine if anyone wants to. good girl. Can you hear me okay? Is this good? Okay. A few months later, when I was five, my dad got a girlfriend, Phyllis. She smelled like essential oils and had long brown hair, an intense bothered air that perplexed and upset me. When he visited that summer, she came with him. Not only did I now have to share my father with this person, but she seemed not to like me. Everyone else in my life had always rolled with my constant chatter laughing and encouraging my insights. Even my stepfather, who could sometimes be harsh, was more likely to school me with sarcasm than scolding. And once I was old enough to master a cutting cutting remark myself, I often earned laughs from him. Phyllis was different. My father and Phyllis camped in our front yard, and ever eager to be near my dad, I slept in their tent with them. The three of us were close together. She was brushing her hair. He was stretched out on his sleeping bag. I was chattering away like a chickadee. Sometimes we play that we're squirrels and we each have a house and a tree, but it's not a real house. It's make-believe. Or sometimes the house is a big rock over there. That's also our picnic rock. Sometimes my mom has a picnic on it with me. I want to have potato chips like in a restaurant, but we don't have potato chips. We have carrot sticks. And when I'm a squirrel, I gather nuts and berries for the winter because will you ever stop talking? Phyllis snapped at me. I froze, paralyzed. I looked at my dad. He didn't speak or even seem to register what was happening. I was on my own. I shut up and stayed that way. The next day, the three of us got into my dad's cab and went on our version of a family vacation. We drove inland to a picturesque waterfall and swimming hole called Smalls Falls, just south of Rangeley Lake. My dad threw himself into an impassioned reverie over what was essentially a roadside pit stop. About the beauty of Maine and the greater simplicity of life in a place where people still lived close to the land. After we had admired the falls, the woods, and the good, simple people, we returned to the car. 
In a show of good-natured naivete, my father had left the doors unlocked, and everything had been stolen. Phyllis's expensive camera, all of the luggage, and worst of all, my little overnight bag with my brand new gold lame bathing suit, which I adored, and my most beloved stuffed bear of the moment. I was devastated. I looked at my dad. He had deflated like a kid who just dropped the pop fly and cost his team the game. What is wrong with you? Phyllis lit into him. How could you be so stupid? I remained silent and looked away, embarrassed for my father. It was the only one of my dad's few visits that I did not want to last forever. Dad-daughter days. Um, So then, when I was uh, 15, after having seen my dad maybe about eight times in my life before then, uh, I got the opportunity to drop out of high school, which is the best thing you can ever do. If you have a chance to go back and do it, I recommend it, Um, and start at this early college just outside of Boston. And my dad lived in Boston, and so I thought, oh, this is so great. So unlike most 15-year-olds who are just like, get the F away from my family. I was like, I'm going to call my dad because I'm going to Boston for the weekend. And uh, I was going with some friends to a show at this punk club called The Channel. And I was like, I'm just going to have my dad meet me. So this is what happened. Even though I was intent on seeming cool in front of my new friends, I was sure my dad could hang. And as always, I really just wanted to see him. Actually, I wanted to impress him. If I hadn't been able to woo him with the sweet girl I'd been, I would woo him with the wild child I'd become. Because my friend was friends with the opening act, we pulled up behind the venue where the bands loaded in their gear. My dad approached, sussed out the situation, and immediately had to get on top of it. He saw a skinhead with braces, bomber jacket, and shaved head, his neatly rolled blue jeans above oxblood Doc Martens. I didn't know you hung out with skinheads, Sarah, he said. There's a lot of ignorance and hatred in that culture. You have to be careful. Not all skinheads are racist, I snapped back. I'm friends with sharp skinheads, and they fight for equality and tolerance. That's still fighting. Someone's got to fight for what's right, I said. He stepped back a little, surveyed me and the pack of drinking, smoking kids. You know what? If you don't want me here, I should go, he said. Just like that, I did not want him there. I wanted to be 15. I wanted to drink beer and kiss the cute guy I'd been eyeing from the opening band. I wanted to go up front for seven seconds. I wanted to stare back. I didn't want to stare back. I did stare back at him, not begging him to stay. For the first time in my entire life, not making everything okay for him. Fine, Sarah. I'm going to go, he said. Okay, I said. Bye. He walked off toward the street. I stood there stunned. Maybe I hadn't been particularly welcoming, but I hadn't been actively trying to reject him or push him away. I didn't have it in me to want to hurt my dad. I just needed him to acknowledge the sophisticated girl in the big city I'd become, after years of striving, largely out of my desire to be close to him. I hadn't even stood up for myself. I had simply sidestepped my usual role, and by doing so, I had betrayed him. He wasn't walking away like a parent would to give me space. He was reacting out of his own chronic insecurities and issues, and I would not be forgiven. He would not see me again for 10 years. So then, uh, (laughs) after some time out in Oregon, I went back to Boston for graduate school, and again, I'm in the city where my dad is, and at this point, we haven't seen each other in 10 years, and I realized that, you know, he's always saying, well, when I quit drinking, or when I quit gambling, when I get my money together, you know, I'm going to see you. I'm going to be your dad, and I realized that that was never going to happen, so I wrote him a letter, and I said, 
don't wait until you're too late. Or, I just got just saw one of my like oldest friends in the audience here, and it just really threw me off. So I'm going to start that again. Uh, I sent him a letter, and I said, uh, "Don't wait until you're perfect, or it'll be too late. Like if you want to have a relationship with me now." Let's try and see what happens. And so we had lunch on his 55th birthday, uh, which was 14 years ago, and we started to kind of build a relationship. And um, I soon realized that uh, my dad was not like other dads, so it wasn't going to be any relationship I'd expected to have. So this is what it was like to hang out with my dad as we were starting to be friends. Uh, And I was working as a journalist at the time. I usually had three or four articles going at a time, plus pitches for more work. And I always wrote up until the exact last minute before it was time to go meet my dad or anyone else. The next thing I knew, I was 15 minutes late and still had to put on face powder. Then I was 20 minutes late and at the mercy of the bus or train. I arrived out of breath, sweating, and found my dad pacing in a slow diagonal, holding a plastic shopping bag with whatever he'd brought that day. Free real estate listings or health health food circulars that had caught his eye a newspaper piece I'd written, a photocopied article about the film we were going to see. I hated being late, and I was cranky in that guilty way. His face opened up in an expectant smile, suddenly as if I were once again the moody teenager he'd barely known. I wanted to crush him. Did you have to wait long for the train, he asked. No, I'm on deadline, I said. I shouldn't even be here. Oh, he said, sounding hurt. Are you working on a story for the Globe? I'm always working on a story for the Globe. He stood there smiling, not provoked at all, and it was hard for me to stay mad. He never got upset with me for being late, and he was never anything but interested in everything that was going on in my life, even when I claimed it made me too busy for him. One night, when I rolled up at 7.15, out of breath, my dad was outside beaming. Sorry I'm late, I said, already defensive. We've got plenty of time, he said. The movie doesn't start until 7.30. But you said, I said 7 o'clock, so you'd be early. I stopped short, shocked and indignant, and then I laughed. His solution was so elegant, and there was no judgment in his tone. Without having to scold me or complain about my tardiness, which only would have set me off, he'd gotten me there early for the film. If I had previously worried that he might suddenly try to exert a father's discipline or control over me, I soon relaxed and began to adjust to the father he really was, not the fantasy I'd created in his absence. It would have been hard to see him as a traditional father anyhow. When we grew close enough to talk about personal topics, including my breakup, his advice was unlike any I'd ever heard of a dad giving his daughter. I think you should take a lot of lovers, he said. (laughs) I didn't respond or even look at him, embarrassed to find myself blushing, even though I prided myself on being able to talk tough with my male friends. The younger, the better, he continued. That way you can figure out what you want and don't want. I nodded my head instinctively. On a purely intellectual level, it made perfect sense. I mean, you have to be responsible. You have to take responsibility for your relationships. Otherwise, you're just an asshole. Um, And then this is the last piece I'm going to read tonight. And um, in some ways, when I moved to Los Angeles, my relationship with my dad actually blossomed even more because I was uh, 
broke and lonely in that particular LA way where I had all of this time free during the day and it was really sunny and I didn't have anywhere to be and he would just talk to me on the phone for hours um, and he didn't have a phone, a cell phone at that time so he would actually take the bus to the subway and go to this pay phone at the subway station with this, you know, kind of calling card like immigrants used to call home and he would just talk to me for hours about whatever and um, it was good. Some of our conversations were hard as this one is that I'm going to uh, read for you and then some of them were great. Um, I had a new concern now. For decades I had thought my dad was the key to all of my unhappiness and having a real relationship with him would heal everything. But I felt just as rickety as ever. How would I ever go from intellectually understanding the ways in which my relationship with my dad had created negative patterns within me to actually changing those patterns? My father had said I could ask him anything, say anything. One day I screwed up my courage while sitting in my living room. Dad, I have to ask you something, I said. Okay, Sarah. I think it would just be really helpful for me to know all those times when you said you were going to come see me and then you didn't. What were you thinking? What do you mean, he asked. When you called me to cancel, what were you thinking? Was it because it was too much for you to handle, or your back was bothering you, or you didn't have enough money? I mean, did you dread calling me, or did you not even think about it? I can't remember, Sarah, he said, his voice cold. That was a long time ago, and you're a grown woman now. Don't you think it's time you started taking responsibility for yourself instead of blaming everything on me? Okay, I said, but I got off the phone with him as quickly as I could, afraid I might cry. I knew the past was as painful for him as it was for me, but he had never spoken to me like that before. I was shocked, and then I was mad. He had fucked up for the first 25 years of my life, and now he's going to put a time limit on how long I was allowed to take to heal? I called bullshit on him, at least in my own mind, where it was safe. Even as angry as I was, I wasn't going to risk pushing him away again. One day that summer, I was driving in L.A. while talking with my father, in the midst of one of his endless, endlessly entertaining monologues, he brought me up short. You're a good girl, he said. Just like that, tears pressed hard against the back of my eyes, threatening to spill. Something strange happened inside of me, like the moment a wall of icicles melts, setting off a cascade of falling ice that's beautiful to behold. You've always been a good girl. Even when you were running around with those boys in the band, you were a good girl. And you're a good girl now. Thank you, everyone. We'll now have a short discussion, and you'll, will you take questions? From, yeah, and sure. there'll be time for some questions. Thank you. Um, so everyone, this is my dear friend Jillian Lauren, who has also written some incredible memoirs, uh, including Some Girls, My Life in a Harem, and uh, her forthcoming memoir, Everything You Ever Wanted. And uh, definitely Some Girls was a memoir that I read when I was writing my memoir, and it gave me a lot of courage to be honest um, and to be brave. <laughs> so it really meant a lot to me to have her... Uh, be in conversation with me tonight. So I'm going to hand it over to her, and um, then we will have some questions, and take it from there. Well, thank you, Sarah, for this beautiful and, and just 
really uh, radically honest and thought-provoking book. I just loved it. I'm so happy to be here discussing it with you. Uh, and let's just start with the title, um, because it uh, brings up a lot for me to hear the words good girl, and, uh, and I think it's really loaded, and I want to know why you picked it and what it means to you. Um, well, I think... Obviously, I read the passage from the book, and so there was actually a moment with my dad where that term was used, and it was really important for me. And I think a lot of the book really had to do with me kind of coming to terms with what my relationship with my dad or my lack of relationship with my dad had caused to happen in my emotional life or my emotional well-being as a person, which wasn't good. And it's a little embarrassing. I mean, we have these terms culturally like daddy issues, and it's a real thing. <laughs> like, there's a reason that we we say that. And so I was a little embarrassed, honestly, when I had that moment with my dad and I found myself crying. I was like, gosh, you know, that's sort of a cheap shot. Like, is it really uh, that easy? And I realized it's actually incredibly profound. Like, that was all I had ever wanted him to say to me. And I still needed him to say it to me in my late 30s as much as I did as a child. Um, and then, obviously, because I was a rock journalist and, um, you know, went a little wild in my 20s, as a lot of women with daddy issues do because they don't have good self-esteem or good boundaries, um, you know, it's sort of playful to kind of, you know poke fun at that idea of like a bad girl and what that is um, and really the resolution of my relationship with my dad as it's represented in the book has to do with me kind of realizing that as much as I needed to hear that I really had to decide for myself you know what it means to be a good girl and kind of push him off the pedestal finally uh, and and when I think of good in terms of your book, uh, it seems like something that was just like this constantly elusive quality that you were, were striving for and striving for and, uh, and, and sometimes got a piece of and mostly didn't and that, that kind of kept you hungry for it uh, and then makes me think of your dad and his gambling addiction uh, and that the idea of gambler's reinforcement where it's actually way more compelling when you don't get something and then you get something randomly like your dad's affection and attention when you're waiting for him at the window and he doesn't show up. Um, can you talk a little bit about gambler's reinforcement and how it operates in your life and your dad's? Um, it's a really interesting thing because obviously when I was younger, I didn't understand gambling. I mean, I had friends whose parents were drinkers and you kind of knew like an alcoholic, what that was, and how it created problems at home, and I just didn't have the complexity to understand gambling, and I didn't understand how someone could kind of get high off it, like what that would be, and it wasn't until I finally, you know, had a relationship with my dad, and then even started working on this book and talking with him about it, that I understood that, you know, when he went to the track, it gave him that same, like, blacked out feeling that someone would get from going to the bar, like it really erased any thoughts or worries or anything else he was going through. Um, and so I think it was really helpful for me to have that conversation with him because then I could kind of understand why he needed that, uh, why he was drawn to it. Because uh, for years I was like, well, what is he even getting out of it? You know. Um, and when I was writing the book, that's when I really had that breakthrough, which I just wrote about in an essay that I published that I had sort of learned to gamble from my dad because you're right, I had always been waiting at the window for him. It was always this sense of, um, you know, 
he's going to come this time. Oh, he didn't come this time, but he'll come next time. Oh, he didn't come this time, but he's really going to come next time. Oh, he did come this time. And I realized that was just like my dad at the track. You know, he could lose 10,000 times and win one time and be convinced that was proof that it was a good thing to do. And um, with my writing, I have literally been rejected thousands of times, but every so often someone would publish something and that would keep me going. And of course, that was what allowed me to actually be a published writer. You know, I decided to write at 16 and was like, I'm a writer. And it took over 20 years for this book to be published. And so um, I wouldn't say that it made me glad that my dad had introduced that into my life, but it, in the way that I think memoirs do, it sort of allowed me to see everything um, and find the gifts in even the painful parts of my relationship with my dad, which was really powerful. Uh, I I actually wrote down a quote that was from uh, it's from a really famous letter that was from Jung to Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. Um, and in it, he said uh, the craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, expressed in medieval language, the union with God. Um, so you really. Uh, have this this fiery creative impulse that almost kills you in the book, um, you know, and and ultimately is this this transformative spiritual force with your your meditation practice. Um, so, can you talk about the spirituality in the book? Um, it is interesting that again, to sort of look at this connection, because it's true. I mean, what I paint in the book is decades of, like, literally almost starving. Like, when I was thanking everyone for the free sandwiches they bought me at the beginning of this, that was literal. I mean, I there were years when it was really against my best interest to keep writing. And I think much like addicts start to fall behind their friends who are getting married and buying homes and starting families, I had that extended adolescence. Um, I had that extended immaturity in large part because of my dedication to my writing. And I mean, fortunately, I had a happy ending in that I was able to, to publish a book that examines it and, and allows me to tell my story. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's funny that you you, you bring up the, the pairing too, because my dad is an incredibly spiritual person and um, is someone who took a lot of LSD in the 60s looking for God and now is, you know, meditating looking for God. And, um, you know, that's something that I wrestle with in the book is sort of where is my dad's mental health at? And I, I didn't ever say specifically, you know, that he might have mental health issues. But when my dad read the book, you know, he had two questions for me. The first is, you know, do you think I'm mentally ill? And the second was, do you think I'm enlightened? So, <laughs> How did you answer him? Uh, I said that I was not prepared to diagnose him because I'm not a professional. And uh, I said, Dad, I think you're having a very enlightened response to this book. <laughs> because really what he also proceeded to say was that he was really proud of me. And um, I think that's incredibly brave and incredibly um, generous of him. Because it, you know, he's read it. He, he knows that everything is true. Um, he has a lot of shame. But he still was able to see it as a piece of art, which I, I didn't even expect him to, really. I mean, I was just hoping that we could have a relationship around the book and the fact that he could even acknowledge it, which, of course, is every writer's dream, is to like, but is it good? <laughs> you forgive me, but do you think it's a good piece of writing? Like but do you like it? Um, that meant a lot to me. Um, I, I want to bring up... Uh, 
uh, something in the book that is really um, compelling and and tragic, which is that you uh, experienced a school shooting, like a mass murder at your college, in which um, it's not really a spoiler, right? Um, but I, uh, you know, and and it was just absolutely harrowing, and and I'm wondering. Um, if writing about that experience uh, and and really uh, putting your own frame around that narrative in this public way has transformed it for you in any way? Um, I think, I mean, the first issue I had with even including the shooting in the book was a lot of guilt uh, because my community that was there has been really private about it. And so I was wondering, you know, is it my story to tell? And um, then right before I started writing the book, it was the 20th anniversary of the shooting, and I was driving up to campus to go and speak at a memorial that we had organized. And uh, we were listening to the radio on the way, and Sandy Hook happened that day. And it was exactly 20 years to the day and so much worse. I mean, we were very lucky in that we only had two fatalities and four injuries, which it's incredibly horrible that that makes our shooting like not a bad one. It's one that hasn't been really uh, talked about much. It's been one that's largely been forgotten. And um, that just brought home for myself and for all of my friends who were at the anniversary that night how important it is for us to talk about it and how even any um, blowback I might get from within the community is less important than my feeling of just uh, telling a, a survivor's perspective. And it was really powerful because I sent the uh, passage about the shooting to uh, Greg Gibson, who is the father of my friend Galen, who was killed, who was 18 at the time that he died. And I just wanted to make sure I had it factually correct and, and let him know, you know, this is going to be out in the public domain again. I don't know if it'll come back to your family, but I just want you to be aware of it. And he said, I feel so bad for you kids that you not only had to go through this when you were teenagers, but you also were trying so hard to make it okay for your parents because you could see how worried all the adults were and how they didn't know how to handle this. And in your best ways, you were really trying to, to say, we're going to be okay. And he really gave me his blessing to tell my story. And... Um, that just, I guess, gave me a lot of courage. So I don't know if writing about it, you know, changed my perspective on it, but I definitely thought it was really important to be in the book. And that makes me think of a conversation I had this weekend with somebody who was saying that, uh, you know, privacy is certainly a very valid choice, but that it can also be just synonymous with shame. Um, and uh, and so I, I just think it is so important and uh, to, to tell your story and to have a voice and that it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. Uh, it definitely did to me. Should we open up the questions? Yeah. Tracy. Tracy. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank Sarah. you. Thank you. And I wanted to ask about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. This is also my dear friend, Tracy McMillan, who wrote a great book, I Love You and I'm Leaving You Anyway, which was another book that gave me a lot of courage that I had read before I started my book. And I feel like you really completely forgave your dad. Um, and that allowed me to see that it was 
possible because I was a little bit behind you in the process at that point when your book came out. I think it's interesting because I wanted to write about my dad years ago. I knew it was a good story and I had put together some material and I thought it was really funny and people who read it were like, ooh, this is so angry. Like, <laughs> I don't even want to be near this. And I was like, no, it's funny. And they're like, no, it's not. Um, and then I think I got older and um, I started to be a little bit more aware of my own flaws and my own limitations that allowed me to see my dad from a little bit more holistic experience instead of just like, what can you do for me? Oh, you didn't do that for me. Oh, I need this from you. Oh, I need, don't need that from you. Um, and so I definitely think that I was well prepared when I sat down to write the book. My dad also got sick. Um, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, um, about a year and a half before I started writing. And the thing that was really interesting about that was he started behaving really, really badly when he got sick and sort of leveraging his cancer against me. And as much compassion as I had for him, it was really inappropriate. And that was the thing that finally made me stand up for myself uh, and just say, no, that's not allowed. And I had never really stood up for myself before. And so that, in fact, made us have a deeper relationship, which then allowed me to forgive him more. So I think it's definitely ongoing. But, um, you know, I think that I don't know if I could have written the book if I hadn't have forgiven him. I think it would have just seemed really insincere on the page. Questions? Uh, can you tell us... Um, thank you. Another friend here. Um, I swear these questions aren't plants. They're just <laughs> coincidentally curious friends. Um, you know, I saw my dad, uh, when I was in Boston and he opted not to come to the reading, he said it was because it was happening in a bar and he disapproves of bars and people who consume alcohol. Um, and I think he was ashamed to be there, honestly. Um, and I have a lot of uh, guilt, I guess, now. Like, I went to have a really nice meal with my boyfriend, and we had a really nice night. And my dad was sort of home alone in his, like, studio apartment that he rents with his Section 8 that he gets. And um, it's, I guess, just constant work for me to kind of keep up my boundaries with him and just understand that, like, he's still gambling and I can't give him money and I can buy him sneakers and things that he needs. But um, so I guess it's it's really, he's an I mean, not to get too like technical, but he's sort of an active addict, and so there are certain ways that I have to protect myself, unfortunately, which can sound really cold to people who don't have that kind of relationship with their parent. Um, but the thing that's so sweet about it is, again, like now that I've started forgiving him and have better boundaries with him, it allows me to have a better relationship with him because I can just accept him for who he is and not have these false ideals of where he's going to be. So... Um, I feel really at peace. I mean, especially with him being ill, I think, um, you know, we've had a chance to, to say a lot of the things we need to say, which is important because a lot of people don't get that opportunity. So I'm really grateful. Coming from background yeah. of physical and mental abuse mm-hmm. by my parents, yeah. I think that you started the book with anger mm. and it ended up with love mm. and you have to be congratulated oh, thank, you. thank you so much, that's beautiful um, it is interesting because um, 
I accidentally stumbled upon a bad review, although everyone was trying to keep it from me. <laughs> and it suggested that I'm still really angry and that the book was really angry and sort of, uh, while it, it was well written in parts, was sort of a failure because of that. And so I don't know what to do with that, but I appreciate hearing that you heard love there, um, especially you know, as someone who understands how difficult it can be to forgive. So I know that I've forgiven my dad and I have love in my heart and I, I do hope it's reflected on the page. Thank you. Yes. How have other members of your family re- reacted or responded to the book? Um, oh, so the question was how have other members of my family reacted? Um, that was probably the the most surprising and hardest part of the book was that um, my mother is a very private person and um, you know really did her best my whole life to handle some difficult circumstances because of my dad and she was really unhappy with the book um, and very vocal about why and so um, that was difficult for me because I had really um, tried to I guess protect her as much as I could while still being honest Um, but you know in some ways that was also an incredible gift because we had a really hard conversation and since then she's been very supportive and came out to my event um, in our home state and um, I think mostly it was just hard for her to know that I had been in pain for a lot of my life and uh, like many perfectionists do I had been really great at protecting her you know there was uh, a reason I went away to school at 15 there was a reason I moved across the country I was really good at um, you know getting results in my life that made it seem like I was okay and so I think for her to be receiving all of this in one download was pretty difficult um but you know overall everyone has been great i mean that is one interesting thing about memoirs too is you know it's written in real time as if it's happening now so like i called my brother who as i say in the book i was really unhappy when my brother was born i was like no and so i called him and i was like you know that's how i felt when i was 10 i just want to make sure you understand that i'm glad you're here so (laughs) hopefully he knows that thank you anyone else yeah other people knew how you were feeling, I mean, did you, with sort of struggling with, you know, your, your father issues and also sort of needing to break out of the mold that you were in, like needing to go to the big city, and sort of like your issues of depression later, um, I mean, everybody, most people have like one good friend that they talk to, but have you, how do you feel now that you've like revealed your whole story? Um, I guess the question is, you know, if people in my life knew that I was going through this stuff at the different stages, and it was really interesting because I, I did just do this reading in my home state, and uh, I, as I talk about in the book, I grew up in a basically a commune in Maine with a, a handful of other families, and there was a woman there who was a little girl in the commune with me, and uh, you know, she and her mom were talking about it at my reading, and her mom said, oh, I never really knew Sarah's dad, I didn't know that she felt this way, and this woman, Emily, was like, oh, I knew. Like, you know, we were like eight years old together, and she's like, I knew Sarah was really longing for her dad. So I think that there were people that knew, and, you know, I think even when I was like a party girl and having fun and drinking a lot, like I think a lot of my friends knew that I was in a lot of pain. Um, You know, as I talk about in the book, there was a time when I came very close to taking my own life a few years ago, and I was very private about that because it was a real intention, and I think 
you know, people who deal with depression understand that if you're serious, you don't talk about it. And so, um, you know, again, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about shame. Like, I had some shame about that, which is crazy, but it's true. And so I think just being really honest um, was important for me. And uh, it just feels like this huge weight that you've been carrying around and you just put it down. And you're like, ah, it's in that book now. <laughs> so it's it's definitely a great feeling. Yeah. I'm curious, Sarah, about the process how you actually evolved to that point of forgiveness. Was there a certain event? Or was there some kind of realization that got you on that road to be able to see your father in a light of forgiveness? Um, the question was, you know, was there something that finally helped me to forgive my dad, like something that helped me on the path. And I think that was something I really wanted to be honest about in the book because I feel like you know anyone who's struggled with this issue or any other issue understands that that's one of the hardest part is that you can be really like high functioning and you can read like Eckhart Tolle and you can go to the sweat lodge and you, especially if you're in California, there's like endless options and you can go to therapy and you can, you know, go to this other kind of therapy and none of it was working. Like I had tried everything, you know, literally everything I could think of or afford. I mean, it, luckily maybe it was good to be a starving writer because I might have been into some like really expensive stuff if I'd had the chance. Um, and I honestly think that all of that helped. It all gave me little pieces, um, like sort of little touchstones for, for dealing with things. But I, I honestly think it was when my dad got sick. I mean, because uh, then finally it was like life or death and um, really time for us to make peace with each other. And um, again, it just, uh, it forced me to really get clear on like, this is perhaps the end of our relationship and, and what is my responsibility for leaving it in a good place. And I definitely think I had all those tools that had helped me to get there. So thanks. Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up and sign some books. Thanks, everyone, for being here. It means so much to me. Thank you, Skylight Books, all the wonderful staff. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.